0: The Gist is brought to you by Squarespace. Start building your website today at squarespace.com. Enter the offer code GIST at checkout to get 10% off. The following podcast
1: contains explicit language. It's Monday, March 14th, 2016. From Slate, it's The Gist. I'm Mike Pesca. It's madness. March madness, I tell you. Yeah, there's also a basketball tournament going on. But this is madness. I was told by the Secret Service, sir... There's a person or two people in the audience that have tomatoes. They are going to throw them at you, we think. If they do throw them, you have to be prepared. Tomatoes, Trump can tell you. Not good if you're hit by a tomato, he told Chuck Todd. Here, he tells the same thing to John Dickerson. If you see anybody with tomatoes, you got to take them out, folks. You got to take them out. The last Republican president talked about taking out the evildoers. The man who wants to be the next Republican president talks about taking out the tomato throwers. So when Trump's legion of followers slash proto-Marinara sauce defenders do take matters into their own hands and punch a would-be produce hurler, what does Trump argue about that protester? But this kid was walking out, and I understand he he had a certain finger up in the air as he's walking out. Well, I think that's a terrible gesture, if you want to know the truth. He had his middle finger up. Wait a minute. Aren't you the guy who was talking about his penis size on the debate stage? Didn't you call Ted Cruz a pussy on the stage? Heaven forfend a middle finger. Jeb Bush got guff during this campaign for saying that Supergirl was hot. Marco Rubio wore bigger boots than usual. Trump is looking into paying the legal bills of a racist old coot who sucker punched a protester. There is not enough gist to contain the Donald's multitudes. I read a story today in the Wall Street Journal that just talks about Trump's history of litigation. Not talking about his history of failed businesses. Not talking about his history of outrageous statements. Not talking about all the stuff he doesn't know. Just all the things he sued over. You know, he once sued the Chicago Tribune for $500 million after the architecture critic wrote that one of Trump's planned hotels wouldn't be taller than the Sears Tower. Guess what? It wasn't taller than the Sears Tower. He sued a Miss USA contestant for disparaging the beauty pageant on social media. And do you know that when a series of concerts at the Trump Taj Mahal in Atlantic City didn't come off like he wanted, he filed a lawsuit alleging, among other things, that the band Earth, Wind & Fire wasn't, quote, A-list talent. September? Boogie Wonderland? Let's Groove? Come on! I know Trump is a steady source of wind. I know he denies the earth is rapidly heating. And I know that Hillary Clinton said this about him. If you play with matches, you can start a fire. But he knows nothing of earth, wind and fire or Cuba policy or the nuclear triad or trade tariffs or unemployment statistics or libel laws or crime stats or previous knowledge of David Duke in the spiel. So after all this, after everything you heard. I tell you why I want Trump to be the nominee and why, if you're a right-thinking American, you should too. But first, an interesting interview from the archives. A couple years ago, before the gist was even the gist, when we were still piloting, I interviewed journalist William D. Cohen, who wrote about the Duke Lacrosse case. The interview never aired. I think we wondered, well, why are we talking about this now? Are the memories too murky to sufficiently revisit it without taking so much of the listeners' time? But now, this is the 10th anniversary of the case. ESPN has a very good 30 for 30 documentary about this case. We discussed the documentary on Hang Up and Listen. But I wanted to bring to you, the listeners, my talk with a reporter who looked extensively at the Duke LaCrosse case and came to the conclusion that no one was actually innocent. I got a web page up. I did it through Squarespace. You know, I keep talking about Squarespace, talking about how they have easy to use, intuitive tools to make a beautiful website how you get free domain if you sign up for a year, how it's professionally designed, regardless of your skill level with coding. So I said, put my money where my mouth is, or at least put my microphone where a dog's head is. Because if you go to mikepeska.com, it's just a baby little website. It's just, just learning to walk. It's only got two or three features. It's kind of functional takes you to our Twitter feed, takes you to our SoundCloud feed, has that same picture when you click Mike Pasco or when you click the gist. But then it does explain that thing I say at the end of every show. That's going to become the FAQ section, that, wait, what do you say section? So you could check it out. It's a really good looking website. It's really minimalist, but it could expand. It could grow. And it's all through Squarespace. If you want to build a minimalist or maximalist website, go to squarespace.com now. You get a free trial, and if you decide to sign up for Squarespace, use the offer code GIST to get 10% off your first purchase. And while you're there, please interview the rubbery head of a dog. Yesterday was the 10th anniversary of a party held near the campus of Duke University in Durham, North Carolina, where members of that school's lacrosse team hired two exotic dancers for a party. One of the dancers, Crystal Mangum, alleged a sexual assault. The Durham DA, Mike Naifung brought charges, but without DNA evidence and Mangum turning out to be a less-than-consistent witness, the case fell apart. It fell apart to the extent that Naifung wound up being disbarred and the players were declared innocent, which isn't really even a legal term but North Carolina's attorney general wanted to emphasize that, in his mind, they were just that. Last night, the ESPN series 30 for 30 aired a documentary about the case called Fantastic Lies. Here we hear the father of one of the Duke lacrosse players talk about what he went through.
0: I went to Colin and I said, look, you have to be on every call with me. You have to be on every conference call, every call. We have to review all these notes. This is your life you're a smart young man, we can't miss anything, you need to be fully involved in this. This was the most serious lacrosse game of his life.
1: A couple years ago, a journalist, a, an award-winning journalist, in fact, William D. Cohen, wrote about this case in a book called The Price of Silence. The producers of that documentary that I just quoted bought the rights to his book, he interviewed Cohen, the author, extensively. They paid Cohen for tapes of The Conversations with Mike Nifung, and none of that material made it into the documentary. Cohen argues in a piece in Vanity Fair today that it demonstrates that the documentary is one-sided. Having seen the documentary, having read Cohen's book, having reported a little bit on the story as it was happening, and having read lots of other material over the years, I've come to a different conclusion. While William Cohen does provide some details not previously known, his work doesn't support a conclusion that a rape actually took place. Now, I talked to William Cohen in 2014 when the book The Price of Silence came out, and I began by noting that Cohen says he wanted The Price of Silence to be the trial that never was. That's true, and I tried
0: to uh, pull together all that I could, all the documentary evidence, talk to everybody who would talk to me.
1: What's your verdict?
0: Well, I am not I don't claim to be a member of of the jury, uh but uh since you asked, it seems hard for me to believe that nothing happened in mm-hmm. that bathroom. I don't know what happened in that bathroom. We'll never know. It'll be
1: one of those known unknowns as Donald Rumsfeld would say. So, let's let's get to Nifung. Mike Nifung, who was disbarred because he did not turn over evidence in a timely and forthright manner. And you dispute some of this, but there was evidence that there was no DNA. And Naifung, a hearing of the state bar said, and Naifung did not disclose this sufficiently to the defense attorneys.
0: Well, that's not precisely true. Mm-hmm. Okay. The fact is that if you just look at it objectively, uh, well before any trial was scheduled, uh, the defense got the entire DNA, all the backup, all the tests, everything, thousands of pages. And in fact, the defense, to their credit, went through it very carefully and discovered that there was actually DNA from four or five other males who were not the lacrosse players you know, that had been on her or in her in in the past week, and then of course, uh, you know, Mike Nifong's view is that may or may not be uh, exculpatory, as he likes to say. Uh, the absence of evidence isn't the evidence of absence. You know, before DNA came along. Rape cases were, of course, tried without DNA evidence.
1: But the absence of evidence isn't the evidence of absence. I mean, what kind of stand is that for an officer at of the court to take? Isn't that just saying that, uh, well, even without evidence, we're going to prosecute? No, I mean, they no, have to no, look I, at...
0: I don't think that's what he's saying at all. He's actually saying just because there isn't DNA evidence yeah. from these three individuals in or on this woman based from that particular night, that doesn't mean that nothing happened.
1: Right, but it's tough to bring a prosecution without evidence. I mean, especially the he, he, evidence he that be- he no, 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 no,
0: no, no. He believes yeah. that
1: there it was evidence. Well, here's that, the thing. Let's say you put yourself in his position. If you're a prosecutor and your main witness has changed her story as many times as Crystal Magnum did, and is, by the way, a dru- either a drug addict or someone who has drug problems, is either mentally ill or someone who has been diagnosed by some people as bipolar, that doesn't mean she wasn't raped. It just she's a problematic witness. The story has changed so many times. There is no DNA evidence. Again, that itself maybe doesn't mean that there was no rape, but it's tough. Doesn't this add up to much less than what he was proclaiming in the press over and over again, that they have their guys, they have these guys dead to rights?
0: Yes. You're right about that. You're right about that, and I don't know why Mike Nifong, other than, I mean, I asked him this, and of course he told me, he believed her, he believed the police, he believed Tara Levesey, he believed something happened in that bathroom, and as a prosecutor... He was doing what he had been trained to do for the previous 28 years, for which he had been widely recognized as as one of the best prosecutors around. And he believed something happened. He had prosecuted any number of rape cases before DNA evidence became prevalent, before everybody was like Mr. CSI. Usually what happens if a prosecutor believes a witness and believes experts who examined that witness, uh, usually what happens is those cases are brought to trial. That's the way our system works. Heek was prepared to lose. He even told me he probably thought he would lose. He, may, he even told me he may not have gotten past a procedural hearing that was going to occur in February about the identification procedure. The question is, for me, is this the way the justice system is supposed to work? Is it supposed to work that it can be subverted, by people who obviously have deep pockets, who have very clever attorneys, they may have won, and they probably want, would have won, and they probably should have won, okay? But the fact that there was no trial here, the fact that there was a secret investigation by the Attorney General, the fact that they were declared innocent, which not, as you point out at the beginning of the show, is not even a word in the jurisprudence right. lexicon, You know, the fact that they paid $20 million to each of these players, the fact that this party has cost Duke $100 million, my alma
1: mater, uh, makes me wonder about what the heck happened here. And that's why I wrote the book. In other interviews, you've said that you believe something happened in that bathroom, and I think you've used the construction, something that no one would be proud of. Correct. Right. In the hearing that disbarred Nifung, he used that same phrase, something happened in that bathroom. And when pressed on it, he said, he doesn't know what it was. It could have been a non-sexual assault. It could have been an intimidation. And you also just told me that maybe this case, he shouldn't have won a trial. When you add all that up, that But perhaps- cases are, are
0: won and lost at trial all the time. Can you name me another case that gets thrown out before trial?
1: Yeah, sure. The Jameis Winston case did, because I, I you just...
0: Okay. I mean, the, 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 the Jameis Winston case... And does that case, seem right? Well, it... I mean, you see, there's like another a, example Okay, of,
1: but it seemed like it was... It, it is another example from the world of sports. It seemed like a totally bungled police case. But when the prosecutor... And I was thinking of that. When the prosecutor got these facts, he extremely criticized the police work, which wasn't criticized in this case, actually, not the police work. But the prosecutor says... What I believe happened is different than what I think I could get a jury to believe, and it seems like you're saying Nifong, even if he thought he couldn't get a jury to believe it, should have brought the case.
0: I, I mean, let's just say that this is unprecedented what happened to Mike Nifong. Okay? that's true. The state bar—it uh, was a toothless organization. Okay. before this, there had been other lawyers who had done far worse things than Mike Nifong, who the state bar didn't even discipline. It was unprecedented.
1: Do you think Mike Nifong should have been disbarred? Uh,
0: You know, personally, I don't think so. Right. I mean, if you think about it, he's the only one who spent time in jail for this case. The kids, the three guys, uh, you know, aside from their arraignment, the time that they were briefly arraigned in jail, spent no time in jail. They got $20 million each. They were declared innocent.
1: This case was seen as a teachable moment that brought up all the issues that are referred to in your subtitle and elsewhere. Power, elite, corruption of great universities. If these students, if these lacrosse players really didn't do it, is it proper to have and turn this into this teachable moment?
0: It is a teachable moment, whether they... Did it or not? I mean, we see with Jameis Winston. We see repeatedly on college campuses all across the country where underage drinking leads to really bad behavior. Uh, you know, the problem of elite athletes. We're seeing it play out at the NCAA with the Northwestern football team. And and there's a lot of money sloshing around here. Duke's sports budget is fifty million dollars. There are professors on campus who can't believe that fifty million dollars is is being spent on, on on sports, and yet it's a very important part of of duke's identity and stanford's identity so these issues are not going to go away it's a very important part of florida state's identity obviously i mean you know i don't know what the heck happened in the Jameis winston case because i also know that you know the times also wrote a big article uh, about this case in august of 2006 that many people later criticized them yeah. for so you never know until these things really play out where where the truth
1: lies the Price of Silence, The Duke Lacrosse Scandal, The Power of the Elite and the Corruption of Our Great Universities. William D. Cohen, thank you very much. Thank you, Mike. Hang up and listen. We'll be live in Washington, D.C. on Monday, April 25th. Wait a minute. We will? Oh, my God. Now I find out. No, I knew about it. We'll be at the Woolly Mammoth Theater in Washington, D.C., 7 p.m., as I said, April 25th. It's the sports podcast. we'll be with uh, I'll be with Stefan and Josh, my co-hosts. Here listen, it says we bring our signature wit and counterintuitive takes to bear on the latest happenings in sports. Do you know that we smash together sports and current events? It's true. but here's a more salient point. For a very limited number of fans, we're also hosting a pre-show cocktail hour from 5 30 to 6 30. If you purchase the ticket package, you get a complimentary drink with the hosts beforehand and your first choice of seating at the show. Doors open at 5 30 for the cocktail hour, 6 30 for the live show. If you're a Slate Plus member, you'll get 30% off your ticket purchase. For more information or how to buy tickets, go to slate.com slash live. And now the spiel. Stop, stop, Trump. Chuck Todd calls tomorrow Separation Tuesday. Got the Tuesday right. There will be voting tomorrow in Missouri, North Carolina, Illinois, Ohio, Florida, and the Northern Mariana Islands. Don't sleep on the North. Okay, I've looked at the time zone. Literally do sleep on the Northern Mariana Islands. But there is no guarantee that the effect of these votes on the Republican field will be to clarify, to elucidate, to edify. It may be the opposite of a bra in that it will neither lift nor separate. It may be a chastity belt in that it locks the candidates in. Perhaps, like a sweaty-lipped teen on prom night, I am just groping in the dark with these undergarment references. Perhaps the primaries themselves have so debased our culture that I have been overcome by prurience. But we should not lose sight of the important goal in all of this, and that is for Donald Trump to become the Republican nominee. Huh? Huh? Okay, now, Along with telling you the reasons why I say that Donald Trump should be the Republican nominee and want to acknowledge the huge reason that he shouldn't be the nominee. He'd be terrible as a president. He'd be a disaster. He is by far the worst frontrunner of either political party in the last hundred years. He represents the most disastrous potential presidency. Although, if my parameters were the worst front-runner or the worst plausible alternative, I'd say Ted Cruz was worse. I do think that while Donald Trump would represent haphazard, incompetent, ad hoc quasi-fascism, a Cruz presidency would represent focused, well-thought-out, mean-spirited, cruel theocracy. There's going to be a fire, people. Would you rather die by asphyxiation or being burned alive? But I do prefer a Trump candidacy over a Cruz candidacy, and here's why. They would both be losing candidates. If Cruz were to lose, everyone would say, well, that's a version of Republicans we know. Let's not do things much different in the future. Trump, however, would be such a spectacularly losing candidate that I think he would lose more than the election. I think he'd discredit and repudiate a way of thinking I think that it's possible the Republican Party would look at itself and question how the virus overtook the host. Maybe he might force the last redoubt of nativist sentiment and acceptable race baiting to reform in real ways. It's like teasing out the gophers to fully force their eradication. The fever might need to spike before it breaks. A disastrous Trump candidacy might occasion such a thorough soul-searching that it purges the ugliest elements of no-nothingness from the Republican Party. But I doubt that. What I don't doubt is what will be wrought. Now, a few months ago, the veteran Republican campaign strategists Gail Gitchgo and Alex Castellanos began circulating a document intending to spur an anti Trump super PAC. That super PAC never came to fruition. But listen to this line from their pitch. They wrote that there'd never be a President Trump, quote, but we also lose the Senate, competitive gubernatorial elections, and moderate House Republicans. I think that the times when real progress has been achieved in America is when the executive and the legislative branches aligned, the Great Society, the New Deal, even Obamacare. A Trump candidacy would not just hand the White House to the Democrats, it would hand the national agenda to the Democrats, and something, anything, would get done. Factor in the Supreme Court, which it looks like it's going to be put on ice until the election, there is a bold chance for some real governance. Let me make an analogy here. You're a poker player. You have a great hand. It's the last round of betting. Now, in poker, if you have an unbeatable hand, if it's a game like Texas Hold'em and you know it's unbeatable, it's called the nuts. Now, I'm not saying you, did, I'm not saying you had the nuts. I'm saying you have what you know to be a great hand. You've assessed your opponent, and you really think your opponent has a losing hand. So what do you do? If you're a certain kind of poker player, you might just say, Well, let's show our cards. I really think I'm going to win. Why bet any more money? Let's just take the win. That's not a winning poker player. If you're a good poker player, what you want to do is make one more bet. A big bet, and you want to be called on that bet. Because if you have the winning hand, you want to get as much money into the pot as possible. Now, I've been there, and I know what the feeling is like. You're nervous. You know that you have a beatable hand, but you really, really think you won't win. Now, in movies, that guy always loses. In drama, what the guy thinks, holding those great cards, there's always a comeuppance. But in real life, with the odds, with poker, what you should do is maximize the amount of money in the pot. You feel vulnerable. You feel exposed. You know there's a chance you could lose. You obsess on that chance you could lose, that you had this big hand and you, f- and you threw it all away. Maybe in a moment of weakness, you want your opponent to fold. Whew. You wiped the sweat from your brow. Wow, I went through a lot. At least he folded. At least I know I won. But no, what you really want is for your opponent to call you and then to show his hand and to have it be much weaker to match your bet. You want to up the stakes as much as you can if you're in a powerful position or if your opponent is in a weak position. I know. I sympathize with your roiling gut emotions. I get it. But in poker, you can't just take any win. You can't just say, ah, I won a little on that hand. If you win more than you lose, you'll be ahead in the long run. No because we've been playing this game way too long and we've got a lot of losses. We got a lot of losses. Wait, are you talking about poker? Still, no, I'm talking about politics. There is stagnation. There is scleroticism. There are programs that people want that are killed by obstructionism. There's ideas that should be pursued that never even come to a vote. A poker player or a political player has to make their wins count as much as they can because you got to make up for all the nicks and scratches along the way. The history of America American politics isn't small wins and small losses equaling out to general progress. It's big, huge programs, great leaps forward. It's social security offset by terrible blunders like the war in Iraq. To quote a garish piece of headgear, if you want to make America great again, you will hope that that very hat has its day. And you'll hope that hat's day will be in Cleveland this summer. So that come November, you might be a little more nervous. But once you win, that January victory will be near complete. And that's it for today's show. Andrea Salenzi, producer of The Gist, pointed out that maybe my entire spiel was a clever bank shot to get Republicans to vote against Trump in these primaries out of fear that they'll give away the Congress. Steve Licktie, executive producer of Slate Podcast, points out that while The Gist has a number of influential Republican listeners in Florida and Ohio, it's probably not a big enough show to swing the entire election. Andy Bowers, chief content officer of the Panoply Network, has advised Lichtai: look, that doesn't matter. Just keep the uncertainty alive. Great negotiators thrive on uncertainty. The gist, sucker-punching the cold clocker since 2014. Umpuru peru de do peru and thanks for listening.